Hours be done, come sustain us. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Not our will, but yours be done, Father, this morning. We give you all the glory. Amen. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to preach. We pray, Lord God, that your word would be heard, that you would be heard, because Lord Jesus, you are the living word. And Father, I pray that we would be strong and of good courage. That's the first thing I heard this morning when I flipped on the TV, drinking my coffee and eating my breakfast bar from Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. And then the preacher on the TV reminded me that the most uh, repeated commandment in Scripture is fear not. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would fear not and we would stand in the ground that you claim in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Two weeks ago, we began preaching on this text and uh, discovered that the armor of God really isn't a what, but a who. It's not what you know, but who knows you. We also talked about quantum physics. Since the 1920s, physicists like Max Planck, uh, Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrodinger, Albert Einstein, they've, they've been saying it's not actually what you know, but who? For it appears that matter really doesn't matter, but you do. For the data is clear, subatomic particles, which are, you know, the the building blocks of all matter, are not actually there. They're only potentially there until someone observes them, until someone consciously observes them, that is, until they think about them. Now, all of that has some utterly fascinating implications and raises some really challenging questions that physicists are not prepared to deal with, like number one, what is an observer or who is an observer in other words not what am I but who am I and number two who is observing me for I seem to exist and and number three how can you and I exist in the same reality because if according to the laws of quantum mechanics I mean if an observer creates reality how can you and I two separate observers exist in the the same reality. If you and I exist in the same reality, someone must be observing us both. A more powerful observer. And scripture claims that observer is God. And his thoughts are his logos, his his word, his, his reason. And his word became flesh. And we wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. His name is Jesus. And so, to get real to get real, and have real relationships with real people, you must live naked before God the observer and his word, his logos, our Lord Jesus. And if you refuse to be observed, because you want to be like the Lord of your own life and create your own reality, if you refuse to be observed, well, perhaps for a time, and in a way, you kind of kind of can. And yet to hide yourself from God, the observer, is to uncreate and desecrate yourself. It is to trap yourself in non-reality, illusions, lies, darkness, death. A universe with no who's, only what's. We talked about that last time, two weeks ago. Uh, That's kind of wild, weird physics, and yet we all kind of know it on some basic level. I mean, if you want to create your own reality, you cannot allow another person, another observer in your reality because their reality will compete with your reality. So you must create a reality without persons and thus without love, right, if you want to create your own reality. Uh, You must create a reality without persons and thus without love, which means without God, which means you would not be observed and thus you would not truly exist. You must be false, not alive, but dead, not substance, but shadow. One of the Rephaim 
is the Hebrew word, a shade or a ghost, a phantasma in Greek, translated phantom or, or ghost. And so this is kind of an adult sermon this morning, by the way, should have mentioned that. Because if you think that you create yourself, you create a ghost trapped in a universe of darkness and, and death. And the Bible refers to that place as, as hell. And one of my very favorite quotes that I've quoted to you many times uh, from his book, uh, The Great Divorce, through the voice of an angel, C.S. Lewis describes hell this way. Hell is a state of mind. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken and only the unshakable remains. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. A damned soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First, they will not. In the end, they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouths for food or their eyes to see. Then no one can ever reach them, someone asks. Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell, replies the angel. And will he ever do so again, asks the man. The, the angel replies, it was not once long ago that he did it. Time does not work that way when once we have left the earth. All moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending. There is no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. In Ephesians 4, 9, Paul told us that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. According to the Bible, that's, that's hell. And he led a host of captives free. Now, Isaiah prophesies, Isaiah 26, 9, the earth will give birth to the Rephaim. Revelation 20:14. at the end of time as, as we know it, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire and, and theon, and death shall be no more. Hell, you see, comes to an end in a lake of eternal consuming fire, and our God is eternal consuming fire. God is the end of hell. Now, hell is... Usually the word Hades in Greek or the word Sheol in Hebrew. And that word does not mean what most American Christians think it means. You see, Hades is not eternal. And it's not only in what we call the afterlife, but it starts here and now, even in our hearts and in our minds. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul wrote this, put away the false. Put away the false self. And then verse 27, give no place to the devil. Literally, give no place to the devil. You see, the devil must be looking for a place, a place where he can hide from the gaze and, and the glory of God, the judgment of God. You see, I suspect that the devil, whatever he is or whatever he is not, has no power except that which we give him. The devil cannot massacre six million Jews. He needs a young, insecure, frightened German man named Adolf to provide a place, create for him a place. The devil cannot crucify Christ. He needs Judas and Pilate and all of us sinners to create for him a place and lend to him some, some arms for cracking the whip and pounding the nails. So if the devil has control of your life, it's because he has a place in your life. That is, you have sin in your life. Yours or perhaps someone else's sin placed in, in your life. You know, that even happened to Jesus when the devil assaulted him on the cross. But sin in your life. But don't panic. 
That is a very common condition. Ask Jesus to expose the sin, then confess the sin and believe God's grace. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Put off the old man, put off the false, the false self, and put on Jesus. So last time I said, it's not what you know, but who. But now I want you to see that we each have created a kingdom of what's? A shadow world, a haunted house, a dead universe. And so to resist the devil is to invite Jesus, the ultimate who, into every corner of your kingdom of, of what's. To resist the devil is to surrender every corner uh, of your haunted house. Surrender every corner of your haunted house to love and life himself, God and his word. So Paul writes, give no place to the devil. And now be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what the heck are the schemes of the devil? Well, we don't fully know. And yet we do know that for the children of Adam and the, and the daughters of Eve, it all begins with a lie. A lie that God cannot be trusted. And so we must take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We must take law. We must take regulation and rules and make agreements and covenants and, and systems. We must take the law. We must take the description of the good in order to make ourselves in the image of the good. And God is the good. In other words, we must take from God to make ourselves into the image of God. We must create ourselves. That's the lie. We must create ourselves and our world. And so Satan says, why? Why walk with God in his garden? Take knowledge of God. Take knowledge of God and make your own garden. Make your own world. Make your own reality. And so Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Diabolos, the word means accuser. You know, if there's no knowledge of law, we can't very well accuse anybody of breaking the law, can you? You see, Jesus fully fills, he fulfills the law, but Jesus is not a legalist. Satan is a legalist. Satan's a legalist. He's the accuser. Verse 11, put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the accuser. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And you wrestle, right? We all wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces, the spiritual host of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So what does Paul mean by rulers and authorities? Or as some versions translate it, principalities and, and powers. Most scholars argue that Paul means any system of government which governs the minds and the hearts of any group of, of people. So Paul certainly means Rome and Roman law, but he must also mean old Jerusalem and the priests that tried to govern with God's law. And he means economies, like the economy of the empire. He meant governments, religions, economies, societies, sociologies, perhaps even psychologies or archetypes that govern the minds and the hearts of Societies. In Colossians, Paul teaches that these things, principalities and powers, were created by God through Jesus. And yet now they need redemption because they have rebelled against uh, Jesus and become corrupt, a spiritual evil in the heavenly places. So Rome isn't just a set of laws. In the Revelation, John sees a beast from the sea and he sees a beast from the land, a false prophet, corrupted religion, 
corrupted faithlessness in Israel. And John sees an economy, a great harlot who rides the beast that serves the dragon that is the devil and God's people are in bed with the harlot. So so you see, even the church can forsake her calling and become an antichrist, an imitation Christ, become a principality and power of this world, become a set of rules or laws, spoken or unspoken, which people use to build a society and make themselves good by controlling themselves and controlling others with threats of punishment and promises of reward, with man-made covenants and oaths and agreements, binding people up in guilt and shame and fear. Principalities and powers, systems with which we seek control, but through which we are, in fact, being controlled. Now, in some world, there may be a kingdom where the ruler is an absolute blessing to each and every one that he rules because everyone is free and they joyfully surrender to his leadership in the ecstasy of love, surrendered obedience and love. But in this fallen world, the principalities and powers control people with greed and fear and imprison them in shame, all under the dominion of the accuser, who is the devil and Satan. And here's the worst part. We think it's normal. In fact, Jesus and his kingdom of love is so different from the ways of this world that even after 1,500 years of education in God's ways, When the way, Jesus the Christ, showed up to his own home and his own people, they took him outside the city and nailed him to a tree. So what are the schemes of the devil today? Now I know this is weird, but this little video may be offensive to some of you, I don't know, but this little video really made me think and wonder, what are the schemes of the devil today? today. Hello, Christian internet. Welcome to our black metal weblog, Dead Satan Club. Dead Satan Club. Yeah! Deep in the bowels of Norway, where every church has third degree birds, Dead Satan Club presents pictures, pictures, pictures for Christians. You Christians love to see pictures of your precious Jesus suffering on the cross. You love it. But we are Satanists. We desecrate what you love by creating images of Jesus in comfortable positions. Like Jesus in a bubble bath. Jesus in a bubble bath making sense and having fun. Jesus lounging poolside. Jesus in a chaise lounge sipping on delicious drinks. Jesus getting guilty rest. Jesus making sure he doesn't end up getting crow's feet. You Christians hate to see images of your Jesus so comfortable. It makes you rigid with fear. You Christians love imagining that the world will end when four horsemen arrive to signal the apocalypse. So do we. But the horsemen are cool too. Having gone and see dudes. We'll be kids at homework. And people with self-esteem problems. Satan watches the king. This pleases me. Now let me be clear. It's really good to high-five people with self-esteem problems, okay? And I honestly think that Jesus would thoroughly enjoy a good bubble bath. But if Satan were to really seek our demise, I mean, wouldn't you try to convince us that Jesus is comfortable? with the principalities and the powers of this world. In this fallen world, he's comfortable with us. And wouldn't he try to make us comfortable? I mean, by guarding us from things like famine and war and death, the horsemen of the apocalypse released by God because, you see, suffering makes us ask this question. Gosh, something's wrong with this world. Maybe we need, like, a savior I mean, wouldn't he create images of Jesus validated by the principalities and powers of this world? Like an American Jesus. Or a Republican Jesus. (laughs) Or a a 
Democratic Jesus, or maybe a Presbyterian Jesus, or a Catholic Jesus, or a Lutheran Jesus, but our Jesus. And above all, Satan would not let us contemplate Jesus Christ and him crucified. For according to Paul, it was there on the cross that God in Christ Jesus exposed and disarmed the principalities and powers. It was there that the first became last and forgave every debt. I mean, an accuser hates that. There he forgave every debt and destroyed the dominion of Satan's lies. Well, I don't know what those college kids were thinking, but they made an absolutely brilliant video. So what do the principalities and powers the world rulers of this present darkness look like. And when we wrestle against them, what does that look like? Last time we looked at Acts chapter 19, because Acts 19, you see, is a record of when Paul uh, first appeared in Ephesus and taught in Ephesus and must therefore be the example in the Ephesians' minds as they read Paul's letter now many years later. You remember that when Paul came to Ephesus in Acts 29, or Acts 19, he baptized 12 guys in the Holy Spirit. And then he taught for two years and three months in the Hall of Tyrannus in the local synagogue. During that time, God did extraordinary miracles at the hand of Paul. So people were healed and demons were cast out. And then these seven Jewish exorcist magicians, the seven sons of Sceva, tried to cast out a demon saying, we adjure you, we command you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demon manifested and said, well, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Not, not what are you, who are you? Kind of like it's not what you know, but, but who you know. Kind of like, well, Paul's Jesus is alive, but you're Jesus? The demon manifested and said, um, um, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the demon overpowered them and the seven sons of Sceva ran out of the house stripped naked, buck naked, stripped naked of their fig leaves. Stripped naked of their religious deeds, stripped naked of their magic. You see, Satan tempts all of us with magic. Magic is using knowledge of God's or using knowledge of God in order to gain control of God. Whereas faith is surrendering control to God in love. Well, seeing what happened to the seven Jewish magician priests, the people of Ephesus burn $8 million worth of books on magic. Something like eight, 50, 500 pieces of silver or 5,000, something like that. It equals like, did the math, $8 million worth of books. I mean, that had to have affected the local economy, principalities and powers. In Acts 19, 23, we read that a silversmith named Demetrius grew furious and started a riot. For Demetrius made silver shrines to the goddess, goddess Artemis. And, and Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians, which was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis of the Ephesians was something of a combination between the, the Roman goddess Diana and uh, the Asian fertility goddess, Asian fertility goddess as evidenced by the bountiful and manifold breasts upon her chest. Acts chapter 19, verse 25. Demetrius says to the fellow craftsmen, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. See, the devil wants you to believe that you can make gods with the strength of your own hands. He wants you to believe that you can make yourself God with religious good deeds. Demetrius continues, and there's a danger. There's a danger, gentlemen, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now remember, this wasn't just their religion. This was their culture. This was their society. This was their economy. They probably had some sort of guild, these silversmiths, where they were bound together with oaths and promises and covenants. This is how they made their living, how they made their life. 
So the city was filled with confusion, verse 29, and they rushed together into the theater. Paul wished to go in among the crowd. Now, the word for crowd is demos in Greek. It's, where we, it's, the, it's the root of our word democracy. And, and do you remember it was a demos that chanted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and committed him to being crucified on a tree. Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples would not let him. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. The word for assembly, the word, Greek word is ekklesia. That's also translated church. So just because a group of people chant together and call themselves a church doesn't mean that they're worshiping Jesus. The assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And now many of you have been wondering this whole time, why is Peter wearing that god-awful tie? <laughs> right? But how do you know it's a god-awful tie? You see, in 1972, I remember my dad wearing this tie and thinking to myself, I have the coolest dad and that is the coolest tie. How could people in the 19, how could men in the 1950s think that those god-awful plain gray ties were cool? This is Paisley, 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 I chanted. You see, there's no logical reason one tie is better than another tie. It's just fashion. And that's the way it is with the principalities and powers. The logic is fashion. It's only common sense. It's common sense. Do you have any common sense? Look out for number one. The, you know, the strong survive. You, you've got to make something. You've got to make something. It's what everyone does. It's, what, it's, the, way, it's the way of the world. <laughs> Get real. Well, what's real? For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Finally, the town clerk quiets them all down. He, he, he stops the riot by reminding them that they could get themselves arrested, you know, by the principalities and powers. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. <laughs> And that's kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, Paul seems to have access to all this power. <laughs> Healing people, driving out demons, but he doesn't use that power. He doesn't mobilize his political action committee. He doesn't mobilize his crowd or call down fire from heaven upon Demetrius or set off any bombs or shoot any guns. He just lets them turn him into like their scapegoat. You know, apart from the miracles, he, he pretty much just preached the word in weakness and lets them turn him into their scapegoat. I mean, it seems like he lost. Did he lose? You know, it's 2,000 years later, and I don't know one person that worships Artemis of the Ephesians. It's 2,000 years later, and you're all sitting here listening to the words of Paul written in a letter from a prison cell and worshiping Jesus. And just think of it. Jesus had all that power. That's the incredible thing about Jesus. But apart from the signs, the, the miracles, he just preached the word of God in weakness, and then he just let the Jews literally turn him into their scapegoat. Sacrificial lamb. The beast from the land, the beast from the sea, and bed with the great harlot under the dominion of the dragon, used the crowd, Judas and Pilate, and some Romans to nail Jesus to the tree. But it was there that he cried out, Father, forgive. And there, God in Christ exposed and disarmed the principalities and powers. There, the ruler of this world is cast out, says Jesus. There, Christ Jesus himself romances all people to himself. And so Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You wrestle not against flesh and blood. You wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, a spiritual host of evil in the heavenly places. And now I want to tell you a story 
It makes me nervous because when I tell stories like this, attendance goes down. And the story will raise questions. And trust me, it still raises a gazillion questions for me. It's a true story. But if, if, if you're new, I don't expect you to believe it or to believe me because you don't know me. However, if you're old, and for some of you, I've been your pastor for like, gosh, almost 20 years now. This morning, I'm cashing in some credibility chips, okay? <laughs> I want to tell you this story that just blows my mind, and we may need to discuss it or at least refer to it again next week. Part of it you may know because three and a half years ago is when it began, shortly after we moved into this old building. A pastor friend um, from Colorado Community borrowed my office and he made a, a, a video, a little cell phone video for his children of this room. And then he sent the video to me saying, Peter, just look at this. There's this black thing that flies out of the corner, uh, across the window, and then goes out of, out of the screen. What is it? And I said, I don't know. I didn't know what to think. A week or two later, uh, a new person, a woman, approached me at the, at, during the service and said, uh, last week I saw this black thing come out of the corner and fly across the window, and my husband saw it too. And I said, wow, that's amazing, because I think I had a video of that. I showed her the video, and she said, that's it. She turned out to be a reporter from Fox 31 News and said, can I do a story on this? And I said, well, yeah, as long as you don't make us look stupid. <laughs> Meanwhile, Susan and I thought, well, we better pray. So we came down here one Saturday, took communion wine, prayed through the building. My wife has this gift of discerning spirits, and sometimes she'll get words from the Lord. Over the years, through a bunch of really outrageous and crazy experiences, I've learned to trust uh, her gift. Well, she heard a voice up in the corner um, where my office is now, actually going, shh, 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 and we prayed, and we bound it. We bound this spirit, this demon named Secrets. Susan heard other voices, and then I remember she said to me at one point, she said, Peter, it has something to do with the Masons. And I thought to himself, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Everybody blames the Masons. <laughs> well, God said, did some truly amazing and, and wonderful things. I preached three sermons on it in the fall of 2010 that you can go online and watch. And if you're into this kind of thing, you can also watch the creepy, weird video. Well, when the reporter interviewed me, she said, Peter, I did some investigation. Did you know that this land used to belong to the Masons? And actually, some of them appear to have been buried here. Well, over the next year and a half, we did lots of praying. God did lots of cleansing through a series of truly bizarre events. And one crazy prayer time, we bound spirits named archetype and loathing and hiding and then antichrist, which means imitation Christ. And it was amazing because these other spirits thought that they were somehow put here by religious authorities in the name of Christ, but that spirit's name was antichrist. We bound it and then the spirit over it and its name was Lucifer. Masons advance through the ranks or de degrees of their order by taking secret oaths. James 5.20, um, the Bible says, above all, brothers, don't swear any oath. So, you know, after the things I've seen, I don't even say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. Sorry, but I just kind of mumble. And, and don't get me wrong. The United States of America is my favorite government in this world. And yet it is still a government of this world. Well, Masons swear oaths, and the oaths are secret. And yet I've, I've read that by the 33rd and highest degree, a Mason must swear an oath to, to Lucifer, whom the Mason has been told is the same person as that of Jesus the Christ. Now, I doubt many Masons worship Lucifer. I don't know. In fact, I don't know. I, I do not know for a fact that any Masons worship Lucifer. And I'm not sure that most Masons take, uh, take their vows knowing what they do. I think most take them in ignorance, just like all people take vows in ignorance to the principalities and powers 
of this world. And I know that the Masons do many good deeds, just as all the principalities of this world do many good deeds. And I'm not saying that all Masons participate in the nefarious activities of just a few. Nevertheless, in January of 2012, we, we were led down to the creepy room under the base of that southeast tower here in the building with a list of Masonic oaths in order to renounce them on behalf of those that had vowed them in the past in this place. And now my story gets weird. <laughs> and, and, and wonderful, just wonderful. That's why I want to tell you. Two friends from our prophetic team, they said I could share their name. They were at this service last night, Pam and, and Norm. They, they joined us. We, we took communion. We took communion because it's the blood of the covenant. You see, we claim the eternal covenant in Christ's blood, which supersedes and breaks all other covenants. And, and get this, it's not a thing. It's a life. The life is in the blood. Anyway, I announced that I prayed on behalf of the family of God, my family, and then we prayed through a long list of O's, renouncing each one in the name of Jesus. In the process, we bound more demons. One was named ignorance, and ignorance was chained to Lucifer. I was frustrated that he was back again. But anyway, ignorance and Lucifer, we bound. One was named confounder, and it was sent to confound me. We made them all get in a box, this large metal box, then, then all at once, Susan said, I see children. Now understand, I don't see this with my physical eyes. I mean, I'll see it when something's on a film or when something manifests in a person, but I don't see this. Pam and Susan and, and Norm do, but all of a sudden, Susan said, I see children. They're all around the room, and they're really afraid. They're standing in a circle, staring at this like animal in the middle of the room that's been like, like sacrificed. And then she said, I think they would tell the children that the same thing could happen to them. They're trapped in fear, she said. And I realized that the children weren't demons, but that they must be ghosts. And this was like a little corner of hell. You know, Scripture very clearly forbids consulting the dead. I think that's because the dead are lost and they can't give you directions. And because demons can masquerade as the dead. But once we bound all, all the demons, these children just showed up. I prayed that Jesus would come and take the box of demons away in order to comfort those terrified children. Susan and Pam both saw Jesus come, but he didn't take the box away. In fact, he put it in the middle of the circle. But then next to Jesus, this big box shrunk down to like almost nothing. And then Jesus bent down, picked it up inside of the children and put it in his pocket. I asked Susan, was the animal still there? And she said, yes, I, I see the pieces. See, the kids were just staring at the pieces. That's why they had trouble, I think, looking at Jesus. Norm thought that it was a lamb, that the animal was a lamb. Susan said, no, it's a goat. I reminded them that the Passover lamb could be taken from the sheep or the goats. I then said, Jesus, would you, not knowing quite, I said, Jesus, would you sh show them what you do? And those children watched as Jesus put the pieces together, put that goat back together, and it came to life in the middle of the room. And yet Susan said they still struggled. She said it's because their fathers are standing behind them with their hands on their shoulders. And so I said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to re release your, your children. And, and after I said that, the children started coming to Jesus. <laughs> and laughing, and petting the goat, and playing around Jesus, and the fathers did not. I said something like, children, I think Jesus wants you to turn and say this to your fathers, I forgive you in the name of Jesus, you need to come to Jesus. And Susan said, the fathers are still standing there. They're covered in these hoods and, and robes, and so I said, in the name of Jesus, take off your hoods. And then Susan said, they're naked. And they're old, and they're like, oh, withered and 
worn out. And then I preached. I told him about Jesus and his grace, the Jesus that, that I knew, who knew me. I said, you must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then I said this, I'm not even exactly sure why I said it, but, but I said, I think Jesus wants to tell you something and I think he wants me to say it and this is what he says. My father is your father. My father is your father. Pam, Pam then said, she said, Peter, tell the children to go get their fathers. And so I told them. And, and then one by one, the children started to come and take their fathers by the hand and began leading them to Jesus. And as they got to Jesus, they began to change. They, they grew young. It was at this point that all at once my wife got really animated. I mean, she, she, I remember she just said, Peter, 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 the, the man with the knife is attacking Jesus. And, and I remember thinking to myself, like, well, what does he want me to do about it? You know what I mean? I mean, he's Jesus. And, and so I just said, Jesus, would you take care of him? And Susan said, all at once the man burst into flames and turned to dust. See, if he was a man, I believe Jesus will one day make him new because he said, I'll make all things new. If he was only a shadow, well, then there was nothing there to make new. There was one other man who wouldn't come to Jesus. I, I said, Jesus, who is he? Who is he? And Jesus answered, the steward. Susan said, Peter, he's so filled with shame that he, he won't even look up. He won't look up. I figured that he must have been a deacon or a pastor here that allowed those people to meet down in that room 100 years ago. In fact, when we did some investigating, we found some old bulletins under this stage from 100 years ago, and all the officers in the old Methodist Episcopal Church were called stewards, Steward Johnson, Steward Smith, Steward whatever. Well, anyway, I preached to that steward about the power of the cross that on the cross, Jesus had taken away his sin. He had taken away his sin and shame because he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is our scapegoat. And although we tore him to pieces and nailed him to a tree, his father put him back together and raised him from the dead. I said, Jesus told us, remembering that he was the steward, I said, Jesus told us, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now look, you're standing before Jesus. In hell. And he is revealing to you his power and his glory. And then Susan said, he has keys. Peter, they're keys to the church. And so I said to the steward, I put out my hand and I said, you must hand me the keys. And then all at once I realized what I was doing. I said, no. <laughs> hand the keys to Jesus. The church belongs to him. And the man finally did. He surrendered his stewardship. He handed the keys to Jesus. Then Susan and, and Pam and, and Norm, they said it was like a party just began to break out. In the middle of the room, Jesus, the kids, dads, the stewards were all laughing and smiling and talking and the goat was running around the crowd bleeding. And, and I, you know, bleeding, blah, blah, like that, whatever the goats do. It was a party. And I remember I was just exhausted for this had taken several hours and not knowing really what to say or do at, at this point I remember I said Jesus is it time for them to go home <laughs> and suddenly I mean like I told you I don't they see it I they tell me about it but suddenly this door opened in the side of that room down in the basement of this church this brilliant door opened and this glorious light shone through. The, I believe it's a heavenly light. I think it was the door uh, to the new Jerusalem and a new creation. And then Susan said, they're going through. They're walking through the door. And then I remember she just started laughing out loud. And I said, what are you laughing at? What happened? And she said, oh, it was, <laughs> it was just so cute. They all went through the door. The last one to go through was that little goat. And he just ran after them bleeding through the door. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the goat. 
Jesus is the way. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. He is the truth in the place of lies. He is reality in the depths of our unreality. He is the eternal seed that cannot be stopped. You know, for years people said that this old building was haunted. And now I believe it is haunted with the spirit of Jesus, with the Holy Ghost. You see, God's really not into stone buildings. That's not why we call this building, the, call us the sanctuary. God's really not into stone buildings. He's into you. Your life is to be his building, his temple, his body. So the battle with evil is, well, is to surrender every room in, in your house to his glorious presence, his presence. So don't hide. Don't harbor guilt and shame in, in your house. Don't keep any secrets. Don't keep secrets. Renounce every ungodly oath you've ever made. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if all oaths are, are ungodly, but renounce those oaths. Don't believe curses. Don't believe demons, because they lie. They'll, they'll lie to you. Don't, don't believe it. Don't believe the lie. You cannot make yourself in the image of God with the knowledge of God. But God makes you in his own image by grace, through faith, his word. You know, that's how things happen in the Bible. His word. He speaks and it happens. He speaks you into existence with his word. God makes you in his own image by grace through faith. In fact, all has been arranged, arranged and, and, and planned. All has been arranged that you would see his grace and be filled with faith and invite love and life himself. Invite him to make his home in every room of your house. And so, on that darkest of nights, as he was being betrayed by all of us, the Lamb of God took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The covenant. It's called the new covenant. It's also called the eternal covenant. You see, this covenant supersedes and breaks all other covenants. So as you come to this table, you are renouncing all other covenants and claiming this covenant, that from the foundation of the world, our Father um, chose you in Christ Jesus to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and make you his child. Make you the bride of his son. And you know, when you talk about the principalities and powers, there are a couple, well, there are a couple of structures in, in our world that, that are different than the principalities and powers, aren't they? That don't just run on promises of threats and rewards and curses and shame, but there, there, are, there are societies of, of love, which is a different kind of thing something that a good father has for his children and good children have for their father, something that a good husband has for his bride and a good bride has for a husband. And, and Jesus said, I am your husband. And God says, I am your father and I have paid. And so he calls you to come home, to come to the table and receive um, his life, to receive um, his grace, his mercy, his presence, he himself in this old haunted house. <laughs> Believe the gospel and live. And so, Lord Jesus, um, this morning we offer ourselves to you. Just do that now. Just, and whatever words you have in your heart, silently just offer yourself to the Lord. If you vowed yourself to other, other lords, other organizations other than your father and his kingdom, just 
will offer those vows, renounce them. You see, if you're committed to him, he'll tell you what to do. He's your one obligation. Confess your sins. I mean, and this is the, the great thing. I mean, a lot of times I don't even know if it's a sin or not. I just have to give it to him. That's all. And so, Lord God, we offer you these houses. We offer you this house. We offer you this place. And now we ask you, Spirit of the living God, to fill us up. Fill us up and keep filling us up. We're your sanctuary. In Jesus' name, amen. Fear not, for Jesus is in the house. And you will wrestle. We'll talk about this later, but you will wrestle because I think he's showing you his victory. And he's making you his body. And so we all wrestle against principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly uh, places. And so I'm, I meant what I said when, when I said, you don't need to believe my story, okay? But believe the Bible, that Jesus is in the house, and, and, and you do wrestle, but Jesus wins. He wins. And the things that we um, did down there, that's a weird story. Well, I go, you see, they're the things that we do every Sunday when we come here. It's the thing that you do every day when you remember his grace and his mercy and you speak to him and you, you call on him. You, um, you become a vessel for uh, the destruction of the work of the devil at the hands of Jesus, the body of Jesus. And so don't fear. And one day, um, things will really go dark. I mean, we'll lose control. The principalities and powers will no longer work for us. We will breathe our last breath and our physical heart will beat its last beat. And we will descend into what appears to be darkness and then suddenly you'll see him. Don't do this. Don't keep your head down in shame like you don't know him. Don't run from him in fear as if you're not forgiven and his blood hasn't canceled every debt and every agreement you ever made with evil. Uh, don't run, don't hide, but look, him up, look, look up, look in his eyes, lift your head and say, Jesus, I'm ready to go home. Because you see, he's ready to come home to you. You're his sanctuary. And he loves you and he wants you to know it. So in the name of Jesus, believe the gospel. Believe the good news. You see, it really, really is good news. This one thing we know, he's good, and he's showing you. In Jesus' name, amen.